I want to start with the scripture reading this morning, and then we'll talk about it. I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. In the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God. For if the righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died in vain. So what he did there, he said, I've been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. And then he says, but lest you think I'm living and my righteousness comes according to what I'm doing, that's not true. I'm not setting aside the grace of of God. You know, sometimes we have trouble understanding how other people think. I know that right now in our country, you think, how can somebody think that way? That a lot of you go through through that. And uh, I got some examples of that. Uh, actually, back in 2016, before I preached this message the first time, uh, Jennifer gave me this this uh, little article called The Wisdom of Kids. The Wisdom of Kids. And uh, some of them really are pretty wise. For example, Patrick, who's 10 years old, said, never trust a dog to watch your food. <laughs> you know? Now, that, that's, that's good thinking. Uh, Tyler who's 11, said, when your mom is mad at your dad, don't let her brush your hair. <laughs> I guess you girls probably know about that. Andrew, who's nine, said, puppies still have bad breath, even after eating a Tic Tac. <laughs> and Eileen, who is eight, and I think uh, Beats, who was four, both would agree with this one, never try to baptize a cat. <laughs> Doesn't work well. And then they grow up and they become teenagers. And their wisdom becomes a little more sophisticated. Tracy, who's 14, says, never allow your three-year-old brother in the same room as your school assignment. Alicia, who's 13, says, when you get a bad grade in school, show it to your mom when she's on the phone. <laughs> Michael says, never tell your mom her diet's not working. He also said, and when your dad is mad at you and asks you, do I look stupid? Don't answer him. <laughs> You know, sometimes there's a gap between kids and adults. And what's logical to them doesn't necessarily seem logical to you, but you, you understand it. And when you start talking about grace, you realize that there's a real difference in the way people understand what grace is and how it's to be applied. There's a real gap between law and grace. And sometimes it's hard to find any common ground, especially since 
both of those are found in Scripture. There are places in Scripture, especially in the Old Testament, where it talks about keeping the law. It talks about the, the different parts of the law, the things that people are required to do. Jennifer and I were reading this morning in Numbers the, the things that were required for a person to do in order to, to stand before God, in order to serve God. And uh, I was thinking as we were reading that, man, I'm glad I didn't have to go through all of that to be a pastor. I just had to go to the seminary. You know, there, there, there's a difference. Uh, but the more intensely we study grace, the more ways we find that God has to express it. God's grace is sovereign. And, and, and you need to recognize this and understand it. Grace originated with Him. He started it. It was His idea. He did it. It's sustained by Him. He keeps it up. He's the one who makes it work. And if we understand those two things, we've gone a long ways to understanding grace. But even then, we're only scratching the surface. And so this morning, as we continue to look at God's grace... I want to talk about three things that are related to what Paul said in uh, Galatians 2. I have been crucified with Christ, and it's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the grace that I now, I'm sorry, and the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, but I'm not setting aside grace. So there's three principles. I think Paul is mentioning here that we need to understand that those principles still apply even though we're not setting aside grace and applying them. And the first is the principle of sacrifice. He says, I have been sacrificed. I've been crucified with Christ. You know, in, in the text, in the Greek text, there's an objective genis, genitive when it talks about Christ, the first phrase, and it means this, the object of our faith is not in our crucifixion. The object of our faith is not in living. The object of our faith is not living by faith. The object of our faith is we live by our faith in Christ. It's believing Christ. It's believing in Christ. It's trusting in Christ, in Jesus. Jesus is doing the living. He is the giver, and He is the object of faith. He is the one who was sacrificed. I have been crucified with Christ, but He's the one who was crucified, not me. It's no longer me living, it's Christ living. And I do that by faith in the Son of God. And so we're going to look at those, those three. There's three principles there. The first is sacrifice. We need to seize this sacrifice. In the verse, the phrase that grabs our attention is, I am crucified with Christ. Grace is about sacrifice. You know, grace is free to you, but it wasn't free to God. It wasn't free to Jesus. Jesus... Death on the cross was costly to him. 
but it must also become our death also. His death was literal, crucial, and cruel. And though we don't die physically in that sense, we die figuratively in that we relinquish ourselves to him. We die to self. We seize his sacrificial death as we let it take place in our hearts. The Old Testament book of Isaiah foretold the suffering of the Messiah in great detail. Here's what it said about his suffering. It says, He is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we did not esteem him. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. Now you know that. You know all of those things. But just knowing it isn't enough. They need to become personal truths for you. Does he, has he, borne your griefs? Does he, has he, carried your sorrows? You know, we can have head knowledge of all of that without having a personal experience. And then if, if, our, head, if our knowledge is head knowledge, we become legalistic in our thinking and works-oriented in the expression of our faith. I know a lot of people, you know a lot of people, who believe that Jesus was a historical person who died on a cross, that the Romans put to death on a cross. They believe that. But they quickly add that in order to be right with God or in order to be saved, and usually the way it's put is in order to go to heaven, a person must be a good person, live by the Ten Commandments, be baptized, give money, observe the sacraments. In other words, there's a whole list of do's and don'ts that are added to God's requirement for salvation. Redemption comes by our accepting Christ's death personally. It's not Jesus Christ plus being baptized. It's not Jesus Christ plus giving a tenth of your income. It's not Jesus Christ plus going to church. It's Jesus Christ alone. We studied that when we were doing the alones. Our salvation is in Jesus Christ alone. And we need to be grateful for the fact that he gave the sacrifice that we could be saved. Peter says it this way. Listen to his, his, his gratefulness for sacrifice. This is in 1 Peter chapter 2. He says, For to this you were called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us as an example, that you should follow his steps who committed no sin, nor was guile found in his mouth, who when he was reviled did not revile in turn, and when he suffered he did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously, who himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness, by whose stripes you were healed. Now if you break that down, he said, 
that we should follow in his steps. He committed no sin. Raise your hand if you've committed no sin. And my hand's not up because I haven't committed sin. This is just an example to you. Nor was any guile found in his mouth. He was never found to say anything untoward. Anybody? You you see, those are things we can't do. There's no way that we can do those things. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but committed himself to the judges righteously. And so Peter's saying, you can't do those things. You can't be what's required. And then he says, but he bore our sins in his body on the tree that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness. By his stripes you were healed. Jesus did it. Thank goodness that Jesus did it. And we should be grateful for that sacrifice. And we need to grasp the fact that it was sufficient for our salvation. And we need to recognize that we could never offer an appropriate sacrifice for ourselves. Jesus did it all. The old song, Jesus paid it all. You know, we ought to remember that. We ought to, it ought to be something that just flows through us. Jesus paid it all. The Old Testament portrays the worship of the Israelites in the tabernacle and then later in the temple. And it was a celebration that included the blood sacrifice for, of animals for the covering of sin. And all of those offerings pointed to the day when the Lamb of God would make that final offering, His blood shed for all the people, for all the sins, for all time. John the Baptist introduced us to Jesus when he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That was John's introduction of Jesus to the world when he was baptizing in the Jordan and Jesus came down to the Jordan and then was baptized by John the Baptist. Christ was the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecy, the perfect lamb to provide the ultimate sacrifice for sin. So then Paul could say, I am crucified with Christ. I'm justified by Jesus Christ. You know, not literally... I'm not on a tree, I'm not hanging, crucified, but I've been crucified with Christ, meaning that I can be dead to sin, I can be dead to the law, I can be dead to myself, because Jesus Christ has set me free, and today I live because Christ is alive in me. You know, appreciate the good news that when Jesus died, he paid the penalty for your sins in full. You appropriate it, make it yours personally. His death is the payment for your sins. You receive him as your savior. And then you practice self, the principle of sacrifice. And you don't do that by hanging on a cross. You don't even do that by carrying a cross. You do that by surrendering your will to his. And that's the second thing.
the principle of surrender. There's sacrifice and then there's surrender. Paul says in 1 Corinthians, he says, Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? For you were bought at a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. This surrender is an unconditional surrendering to Jesus Christ. Uh, you know, sometimes it may be a little hard for us to understand and grasp unconditional surrender because we're so far away from that in, in, in our culture and in our society. You know, uh, our generation, my generation, has never experienced an unconditional surrender uh, politically or in, uh, uh, in, in a war. Uh, not that saying that we haven't fought in wars, but we've never experienced an unconditional surrender. Uh, God says, I want you to surrender unconditionally to me. I want everything. And it's not easy. Because there are some things that we've got to surrender to God. First, perhaps, is our stubborn will. And, and our wanting to hold on to our possessions. And our body that our spirit inhabits. The body we share with the Holy Spirit of God. Who comes to indwell us when, when we're saved. You know, th th those two words in our English vocabulary that are greatly overworked are me and mine. This is my house. This is my car. This is my family. If you surrender to Christ unconditionally, it's his car. It's his house. It's his family. It belonged to him. I am simply the trustee or steward of those possessions. And we're accountable to God for the way we use them, but they belong to him. And, and unless we get too distressed by that, the good news is, is we also get to surrender our weaknesses to him. He said to me, Paul says this in 2 Corinthians, we're going to look at this passage more next week, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. My strength is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, most gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities and approaches, reproaches and needs and persecution and distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. So not only do we give up the possessions, we give up the weaknesses, the sicknesses, the infirmities. Paul had that problem that he called a thorn in the flesh, and time after time he asked God to remove it, but God finally just said, hey, my grace is enough. That's not easy to understand and remember. So Paul surrendered the weakness and became stronger because he surrendered the weakness. God provided the strength. That's how it works for you and me. Now you know that the, the person that I'm preaching to most right now is me. Because, you know, I have this thorn in my back that's killing me. And it's tough to just surrender it to the Lord. It's tough just to, to, to do that. But you say, say to him, 
in, in your grace, it's making me stronger in one way or another. We can even surrender our sins to him. You still sin occasionally, don't you? Everybody go like this. Yeah, 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 pastor, I do. You can surrender those to him. John writing in 1 John says, If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. You know, if you sin, you don't take a step back from going to heaven. You don't take a step back towards lostness because we can surrender it to him. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You don't take, when you sin, you don't take and you, you, you put a weight on the bad side of the scale so it begins to tip away towards away from God. It doesn't do that. When you sin, you surrender it. You surrender it to Father. My little children, these things I write to you that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but for the whole world. When we sin, we don't have to be guilt laden and defeated because we've sinned. We confess them and we surrender them by saying, Lord, I confess that sin to you and I give it to you for your cleansing. Thank you, Lord, for forgiving me. At the end of World War II, after Hitler's suicide, his successor uh, sent a representative to sign the papers that made Germany's surrender official. The treaty was signed on May the 8th, 1945. It was celebrated around the world, and it was unconditional surrender. There were no conditions. They just surrendered. On August 14th, on aboard the battleship Missouri, the Japanese officials surrendered to General MacArthur. Victory over Japan brought joy to the whole world. But you realize that the Japanese surrender wasn't unconditional. They put a condition on it. And MacArthur accepted the condition. And the condition was that they could keep their emperor on the throne. And so Japan still has an emperor. Um, but the surrender we're talking about is beneficial. We surrender to Jesus Christ, and it's a beneficial surrender. When two enemies have been at war and one surrenders unconditionally, here's what the loser can expect. Total loss, exile, prison, subjugation in these days. But when we surrender to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, we become heirs. Joint heirs. In other words, we, we, we surrender unconditionally and we're in better condition than we were before. We become children of freedom. We give up everything, which is really nothing, to gain God's unlimited resources. 
We give up our puny selves and we gain his strength. We give up our temporal possessions that we want to call mine and me and mine and we give those up and in return we receive eternal riches and glory. We give up being strangers and sojourners in an alien land to become members of the family of God. Not only that, he defends us against our enemies. You know, America defended Germany from their enemies for over 40 years because of their unconditional surrender. When we surrender to our Lord, he fights all of our battles for us. Is that pretty cool? Is that good news? We pray, Father, deliver us from temptation and from the evil one. Because those things actually exist. In case you wondered, temptation does exist. Amen. The evil one does, exempt, does exist and he's waiting to attack us and our families. But the deliverer and the protector is Jesus Christ to whom we have surrendered unconditionally. It's his job to protect us from those things. But sometimes we want to surrender with exclusions like Japan. We want to keep the emperor on the throne. We don't want to surrender unconditionally. But until we do that, we keep the self-emperor on the throne. And we've not met the conditions of our treaty. So surrender, the word surrender, first sacrifice, then surrender. Surrender to the Lord brings protection and power and we move into grace and we can never lose what God has given us. It is eternal and the devil can no longer threaten us. And then the third principle is one that you're more familiar with, I think. The third principle is the principle of faith. And that's what he says at the end of that, that passage. By faith in the Lord, by faith in God, we we, we live this sacrifice and this surrender. In Hebrews 11, he says, Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. For by it the elders obtained a good testimony. By faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God, so that the things which are seen were not made of things which are visible. The first thing he says is that faith is un- invisible. It's unseen. Uh, the skeptic says, I will believe if you can show me. But if I can show you, then it's not faith any longer. The people of God believe without seeing. The patriots of the Old Testament that's written about in chapter 11 of Hebrews accepted by faith that God created everything. So do the people of God today. They accept by faith that God created everything. And though brilliant scientists have unraveled some of the mysteries, they end up basically with more theories than they had to start. I've been reading an article in uh, Astronomy Magazine, and it's not an easy article to read. It takes a lot of thought, and I think about it as I read it, and the, the title of it is The Beginning of the World, How It All Began. But they haven't defined the beginning of the world. You know, even when they get back and they say it all began just with one 
one little speck, and then there was a big bang. They still haven't defined how it began. You know, where did all that come from? And God's people believe that it came from God because they believe what they cannot see. Faith is unbelievable. I'm sorry, faith is unseen. It's invisible. The second thing is faith is unreasonable. Faith is unreasonable. When we read that roll of call of faith in the 11th chapter of Hebrews, we find that the saints of God had incredible, unreasonable experiences. Let me just tell you a couple. You're you're aware of them. Uh, Enoch was a man who walked with God. He loved God. He walked with God. And one day, he didn't show up at home. He didn't come home. But he didn't die. He didn't disappear. He just went home with God. He didn't even get to say goodbye to his family and friends. The Bible records that God just took him home from this life to the next in a smooth, unreasonable transition. That's what what happened there, Enoch. Noah built an unreasonable boat for an unreasonable event because he had faith. You realize that when Noah built his boat, it had never rained on the earth. Not only was he living in a dry land, it had never rained. The rain was caught up in the expanse, in the heavenly expanse. But God told him to prepare an ark because the world would soon be destroyed by floods. So Noah spent the next 120 years of his life getting ready for something he didn't understand. Something that was totally unreasonable. But that defines faith. Abraham's faith was absolutely awesome. Now we've studied Abraham not not too long in the past, but you know, his faith is just incredible. He obeyed when he was called out to go to a place which God said he would receive afterwards as an inheritance. But he was called to go out to a place he had never seen, he didn't know about, and he didn't even know where the place was. By God's orders, Abraham picked up his family and all his possessions and left home to go. He had no idea. God said, you start going, and when you get there, I'll tell you that you're there. You know, that's, that's quite, a, quite a faith. Hebrews 11, verse 11 says, But faith is invisible, and it is unreasonable. And here's Sarah. She was 100 years old when Abraham told her that God said he would, she would soon have a baby. And because she actually laughed out loud, God told her to name the baby Isaac, which means laughter. And though it was totally unreasonable, she bore a child when she was past the age because she judged him unfaithful who had promised. And for his whole life, he was known as laughter because his mother laughed. So faith is uh, invisible and it's unreasonable. 
and it's also undeniable. The Galatians were having a problem with letting faith stand alone as the means to salvation. And they wanted to have faith, plus they wanted to keep the law. And basically what it was is they wanted to have faith and they wanted to require others to keep the law. That's usually the way it is. And Paul says to them, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you that you should not obey the truth before whose eyes Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed among you as crucified? The only thing I want to learn from you is did you receive the Spirit by works of law or by the hearing of faith? Now the answer to that question is obviously they received the Holy Spirit by faith. So Paul backed them into that corner where they had to concede that they were they received the Holy Spirit by faith and they were being perfected. And they had even seen miracles because of faith. So Paul says, how could you regress by adding the keeping of the law as necessary for salvation or necessary for holiness or necessary for heaven? Did the miracle of salvation come when you finally kept all the laws? Did it? Who kept all the laws so that they got saved? Nobody did. Or did the miracle of God and the Spirit come from you by hearing, by faith? In my humble opinion, now this is just my opinion. Uh, how, how do they put that on a tax? I-M-H-O. This is my humble opinion. The reason we don't see very many of God's miracles today is because we're works and performance oriented and we think we can do things by ourselves. Miracles return in proportion to our faith. When we begin to look at God's grace and thank Him for it and we realize that our salvation is truly a miracle of faith, everything that was possible through faith in the Son of God and the New Testament is possible now. The God of then is the God of now. The same God who invented rain and can make rain snow. The same God who created man and made him flesh can heal that flesh when he chooses. God's grace is unleashed on the principle of sacrifice, surrender, and faith. It is undeniable that we receive the Spirit of God through His sovereign grace. I don't expect anybody on you on Zoom to reply to that, but you guys in here, I expect you to say Amen. amen. <laughs> That's true. That's truth. We are not redeemed by corruptible things such as silver and gold, by the precious blood of the Lamb who was slain before the foundation of the world. He was our sacrifice. And when we unconditionally surrender our will, our possessions, our weaknesses, and our sin to Him, we begin to understand grace. And we understand it. It's invisible, unreasonable, undeniable, but we understand it by faith. And he says, without faith, what? It is impossible to please God. 
God's sovereign grace is yours when you understand the sacrifice and unconditionally surrender and reach out in faith for what only God can give you.